0: Hello, and welcome to a special one-off episode of An Invitation. An Invitation to Cool Runnings. Yes, the 1993 Disney film directed by John Turtletop, That Cool Runnings. The film tells a fictionalized version of the 1988 Olympic Winter Games, where the men's Jamaican bobsled team made their debut. Darius Bannock, played by Leon Robinson, Sanka Coffey, played by Dougie Doug, Junior Bevel, played by Raul D. Lewis, and Yule Brenner, played by Malik Yoba. All are aspiring Olympic sprinters who fail to qualify for their original sport of choice, causing them to take up bobsledding under the guidance of disgraced American coach Irving Blitzer, played by John Candy. I don't want to give you whiplash by transitioning from a contemporary suspense drama like The Invitation to a heartwarming, even saccharine 90s sports film, but part of what has always been appealing about the established format of an invitation to The Invitation is that I could eventually discuss any film, regardless of genre. So in some ways, Cool Runnings is an ideal candidate in that it's forcing me to test and stretch the flexibility of this podcast, as well as my own critical eye. More to the point, perhaps, what little overlap that does exist between The Invitation and Cool Runnings resides in how personal each of these movies are to me. Unlike The Invitation, obviously, Cool Runnings was a staple in the Panola House growing up, along with Heavyweights and UHF and... Of other animated Disney movies. It was very much a family movie in the traditional sense, in that it was something everyone could enjoy and would receive relatively little, if any, pushback when it was suggested. John Candy tends to have that effect, and especially had that effect on our family. One of the brilliant things about casting John Candy as washed up, morally questionable coach Irving Blitzer is that. While it is a key and obviously principal role, he simply helps bring eyeballs to the screen so that the real leads stories can be told. Ultimately, he leaves more than enough room for the four main characters and four main performances to sing, to soar, all while delivering his own very underrated and at times understated performance. We'll talk more about him later, but it feels important to note that this was John Candy's final movie that was released while he was alive. Before continuing, though, I'd just like to say that it's both easy and, in a lot of cases, increasingly necessary to be critical of Disney, especially as they continue to monopolize the entertainment industry, which has serious implications. But with that being said, even while revisiting this film in 2021, there is simply an efficiency and an accessibility to Cool Runnings that whether you like the film or not, whether you like Disney or not, it's still very impressive. The jokes and comic timing are sharp without being dated. The performances are winning and big without sacrificing depth. Even the movie's hit soundtrack strikes an effective balance between needle drops and the original score by Hans Zimmer. There's an economy to it all that is, frankly, just indicative of good, solid craft. Does Cool Runnings ever attempt to escape convention, tropes, or even cliche? No, not really. It very much exists in the tradition of other Disney sports movies of this and other eras. The Mighty Ducks, Remember the Titans, Miracle, you name it. However, my argument is that this is an odd strength of the movie a feature more than a bug. Not unlike the way Disney's Marvel Cinematic Universe has made record-shattering billions, reiterating a pleasing tonal formula, so too does Cool Runnings, namely in the form of the aforementioned economy and accessibility. Yet unlike Marvel, Cool Runnings is able to tell a complete story with a real beginning, middle, and end, without the crutch of setting up 50 other franchises that contribute to a persistent lack of closure and or consequences. Funny how standalone and episodic storytelling feels a little bit novel in 2021 when streaming has made serialized storytelling so ubiquitous. Viewing trends aside, I also want to point out that big budget studio systems aren't inherently good or bad. As Matt Manfredi and Phil Hay, writers and producers of The Invitation, pointed out to me, and as creatives who have worked both on independent and studio movies, both scenarios have their own pros and cons that make them both appealing. Creating stories for a large audience has its own unique challenges the same way that telling one for a niche indie crowd does. Making a product or story for mass consumption is, and I'm mainly speaking to myself here, it's easy to huff and scoff at, and to put it in stand-up comedy terms, punching up is better than punching down. But in rewatching Turtle Tob's Cool Runnings, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't struck by the sheer efficiency and efficacy of the final film. It's no secret that the world of storytelling struggles with originality and has for a long time, hence the frequent description of this story or movie is blank meets blank whether it's in regards to a film, a novel, or any other medium. That blank-meets-blank structure relates to the idea that everything is a remix, which is a term popularized by filmmaker Kirby Ferguson. Said another way, stories or styles that occur as or feel new aren't so much introducing an earth-shaking originality as much as they're combining existing components that have not been combined before. Or as Ferguson puts it, Remixing is a folk art, but the techniques are the same ones used at any level of creation. Copy, transform, and combine. You could even say that everything is a remix. End quote. I'm generally not that interested in pure originality since it is arguably a moot point. Maybe you've heard the expression, there's nothing new under the sun. For example, I often find myself... Defending James Cameron's Avatar. Not because I think it's high art or because it's a paragon of originality or novelty, but because it understands and executes story basics with clarity and verve. And sometimes that's the most important and the most difficult narrative obstacle to overcome. Going back to the idea that everything is a remix, that's why I think the criticism that Avatar is just fern gully with space cats, to be a sort of shallow jab that misses the point. What's funny about that comment, which is almost always meant as an insult, is that it's kind of a neutral thing to say because it's just reinforcing that remix culture that we live in. The same way that remixing certain components can inject life into a narrative, so too can the relative grind of just superlative and good execution. And the latter is probably more crucial anyway. Ideas often arrive with little to no effort. Sometimes they even show up fully formed. It's in the doing of them where the laborious hands-on artistry resides. Put another way, that too is where the remixing lives. In the case of Cool Runnings, it is remixing the inspirational sports movie. And an inspirational sports movie about bobsledders is pretty novel as is. So by stretching it even further, to focus on an improbable Jamaican sled team is a rather striking cinematic deviation, even in 2021, let alone in 1993 when the film came out. Naturally, the film traffics in broad strokes that depict casual racism in clear but relatively safe terms. (laughs) Hey, seeming to you like nobody likes us. We're different. People are always afraid of what's different. But that doesn't make these instances false or disingenuous. Indeed, I would say that times change is a theme of the movie. Yet the adage or phrase of times change can be weaponized, like it is against the character of Blitzer and his team, as a toxically purist gatekeeping strategy. Yet it can also be symbolic of genuine progress and equity. Like Yule's quote about being different suggests, Though progress almost always occurs, so too does oppression to match it. While this is an unfortunate, difficult truth, it is indicative of the film's willingness to address a fairly timeless universal conflict. Simultaneously, there are some notable examples of universal wants and fears in Cool Runnings, like Doris and Sanka's shared desire for glory and excellence like Junior Bevel's need for independence and self-expression that isn't tied to his overbearing affluent father and the family legacy, like Ewell Brenner's desperate desire to escape Jamaica, not to mention his want for fame and money. Fascinatingly, as easy as it might have been to make the old white gatekeepers at the Winter Olympics the only villains or antagonists, those well-off, condescending rulemakers who keep moving the goalposts for the underdog Jamaican team, They're just one of a series. Outside of the cruel Swiss team who antagonize the Jamaicans in cartoonish but not necessarily unrealistic ways, virtually every major party or character in the film shares one central fear. The fear of being embarrassed. From Junior's father, to Blitzer, to Blitzer's peers, to the officials at the Olympics, and even Mr. Coolidge, the president of the Jamaican Olympic Association. None of the gatekeepers and superiors that stand in front of Derice, Sanka, Jr., and Yule want to be embarrassed. Mr. Coolidge doesn't want Jamaica to be humiliated on an international scale, nor does he want his country's already underfunded program to lose more money. The casually racist Olympic officials don't want their overwhelmingly white organization to be undermined or diluted by this Jamaican team. Jr.'s father doesn't want his only son to accept an unprecedented path that lacks the safety and stability of the family business. And Irving Blitzer is perhaps the only one who knows embarrassment well enough to be relatively unfazed by it, almost immune. He is repeatedly embarrassed throughout the film in the form of denials, insults, and subpar equipment. He simply does his best to mitigate that current and potential humiliation enough to prove those naysayers wrong. The fact that he takes action to empower his young, scrappy team, rather than railroad them like everyone else, speaks to the fact that he has nothing to lose and everything to gain, or regain, as it were. Blitzer's arc is that of a man somewhat selfishly hoping to restore his once prestigious status to a man who is genuinely rooting and caring for his team beyond finally accomplishing legitimate win. He almost seems to be talking to himself when he says this line from the second half of the movie. But if you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. Referring to the gold medal, of course. And frankly, he doesn't want his already infamous, unflattering history as a cheater who got his medals revoked to be further tainted. Forget the fact that he's coaching a Jamaican team For a winter sport, which is obviously its own shocking, colossal gamble. Simply showing his face at the games is more than some of his old acquaintances can even believe or fathom, regardless of what country he's representing and coaching. But Blitzer fights for his team and pushes back against the pervasive humiliation he constantly seems to wade in because he doesn't want the sins of his previous life to rob his earnest, hardworking coaches of the opportunity that they've earned. What you're doing is wrong and you know it. Now, this is about you and me, and let's get it straight right now. 16 years ago, I made the biggest mistake of my life. I cheated. I was stupid. I embarrassed myself, my family, my teammates, my country, my coach. If it's revenge you want, take it. Go ahead. Disqualify me. banish me. Do whatever you want, but do it to me. It was me who let you down, Kurt. It wasn't my guys. The more he realizes that their obstacles extend beyond being an added punishment for his decades-old cheating and are also racially punitive, the more invested he becomes in Dereese, Sanka, Junior, and Yule. It's also a credit to the performance of Candy, in the direction of Turtletop that Blitzer occurs more as a man genuinely interested and invested in his team, rather than using them as a means to a selfish end, which would be understandable, but boring. Candy suffuses Blitzer with shame, anger, joy, and optimism. Like I said earlier, this is a wonderful performance to be counted as one of his last. It's a wonderful performance period. It makes me long for a reality in which Candy was still alive and was given the opportunity to explore similar dramatic avenues as, say, Adam Sandler. He easily has the same, if not greater capacity, and it's extremely gratifying to see it used, even if it just scratches the surface. But on that emotive surface, there is still a tangible sense that Blitzer doesn't want to let down himself and especially not his young, enthusiastic team. Again, all of these worries are fear-based, stemming from the unique humiliation of embarrassment, even shame. And as much as I'm deeply indifferent, bored, and generally uninterested in real-life sports of almost any kind, I conversely love a good sports film, which is an insight about my own preferences that I don't think I even fully realized until the last few years. And I think a lot of that has to do with the high functionality of the genre. While there's of course a high degree of repetitious, transparent structure, there can be comfort in that as well. I think that's because there's an inherent dynamism and panache within that core predictability there's room to remix and deviate within that somewhat inviolate template. Not only do we know that there will be stumbling and falling leading to an eventual rise, whether that rise is emotional or more tangible, but the stakes are built in. They're embedded by the very parameters of athleticism. Brackets, playoffs, qualifiers, and championships are all based in organization and deliberate structure. Winners are determined by numbers. The unambiguous nature of these metrics creates narrative clarity that lends itself to telling satisfying stories. The tension is frequently baked in as well, as anticipation, skill, and chance all inform so much of the competition. Anticipating who will win a sprint, knowing a certain character has won multiple championships in a row, being reminded that unpredictability is one of the only certainties, even as experts, commentators, and stats weigh in to mitigate that inescapable truth. The list goes on. Simply seeing human beings who are good at something, and seeing them be good at it, is probably one of the most reliably compelling things to depict, perhaps only outmatched by seeing them attain and grow with that skill in advance of displaying it. Furthermore, these contests of physical and mental will almost always have an audience. And regardless of the size of that viewership, the mere presence of observers adds an intrinsic level of stakes. Think about virtually any sports movie from Rocky to Miracle and how vital the audience is to the story. Not only are they stand-ins or proxies for us as viewers of the film, they're reinforcing that there is a world with good and bad consequences outside of the track, the ring, the field, the octagon, etc. There is tension and texture to knowing that friends and enemies are both watching at the same time, that teammates and opponents are both watching. Whatever the game or sport is, the presence and the advent of the audience not only concentrates, but heightens the reality that the principal characters are participating in. Moreover, our behavior changes when we're being watched for all sorts of reasons. This is why I mentioned the level of showmanship that is often inextricable from the craft and skill of athleticism itself. Part of the arc that the characters of Darice, Sanka, Jr., and will experience is one of reconciling their distinctive, larger-than-life personalities with their actual skill level as Olympians. They're used to puffing up their chests and talking a big game, especially in the context of their original sports, like pushcart racing and sprinting. Consciously or not, Therese, Sanka, Junior, and Yule all gradually grow from and exceed a certain level of arrogance and overconfidence. Which, in fairness, not only assisted in their perseverance, but is frankly an unfortunate prerequisite for being a black person in white spaces. They have to work twice as hard at least to make a fraction of the impact, and even then, the goalposts will be moved to secure their denial. From that supreme confidence, though, they eventually arrive at humility, where they accept that selfish showmanship simply does not apply to bobsledding, even if it may have before in their individual lives. Gone are the bright colors and scrappiness of the pushcart derby. Gone is the breathtaking physical prowess and oneness of the 100-meter dash. It's been replaced by the subtle, often invisible craft of a four-person toboggan. Anyone outside of that claustrophobic sled can't truly witness the incredible dexterity of steering the unforgiving timing of breaking, or the sheer strength and momentum anchored by the men sandwiched in between. As much as teamwork remains a cliche of this genre, what's notable and impressive about Cool Runnings is its unenviable task of expressing that important idea through a very unmainstream sport, one which is frankly quite opaque to boot. We can't see hands dribbling, we can't see feet running or kicking, or even bodies moving, for that matter. Thankfully, in its place is the sheer visceral quality of unfathomable speed on paralyzing the cold ice. Yet, the film is wise in not getting weighed down by esoteric minutia, and instead knows to focus on the metaphor itself that this lethal arrowhead barreling furiously on twin blades is the literal vehicle for its occupant's transformation. The conceit of the film isn't that the first person to transform wins or is the best. The conceit of the film is that crossing the finish line is enough. That's because crossing the finish line, like the four characters do after their devastating crash in the film's final act, often means crossing the threshold of transformation. And that is a virtue, an accomplishment, that is not about being the first to do it. It's just about doing it. An Invitation to Cool Runnings is written, produced, and hosted by me, Jim Panola. Original score is by John Panola. Graphic design is by Joseph Panola. This episode is dedicated to our mom, Diane Panola. I love you, Ma. Happy birthday. Thanks for listening, and peace be the journey.